we can feel like we're failures. Like if we're comparing ourselves to the other parents at school pickup or, you know, we see these kids in our neighborhood who are having these great play dates and their kids seem to be perfect humans navigating the world without any problems, then we can start to wonder, what am I doing wrong? Like, what is wrong with me? I'm a huge failure. And so finding people who really understand what you're going through is everything and can really just turn the tide for so many of us. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Otsuka, your host. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 191 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyoutsuka.com. You know, my purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. And in the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something, not one. So for these reasons, I am just delighted to introduce you to Debbie Reber, Lately, I have had so many listeners request that she come and talk to us. Debbie is a parenting activist, best-selling author, podcast host, speaker, and the founder of Tilt Parenting, a website, weekly podcast with more than 4 million downloads to date, and resource for parents raising differently wired children. A regular contributor to Attitude Magazine, Debbie's newest book is Differently Wired, A Parent's Guide to Raising an Atypical Child with Confidence and Hope. In 2018, she spoke at TEDx Amsterdam, delivering a talk entitled, Why the Future Will Be Differently Wired. Prior to launching Tilt, Debbie spent 15 years writing inspiring books for women and teens, including Doable, Chill, The Real Deal series from Chicken Soup for the Soul, Run for Your Life, and more than a dozen Blue's Clues books. Before becoming a solopreneur, Debbie produced documentaries for UNICEF, 
worked on Blue's Clues for Nickelodeon, and developed an original series for Cartoon Network. She has an MA in Media Studies from the New School for Social Research and a BA in Communications from Penn State. In 2019, Debbie and her family relocated to Brooklyn, New York after living in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, for five years. Debbie is an avid runner, traveler, and hiker, and claims reality shows as her guiltiest of pleasures. Debbie, did I get all that right? You did. I sound like I'm all over the place, but yes, it was very accurate. Actually, you don't sound all over the place at all. You sound extremely accomplished, which, um, you know... I hear a lot about that, right, from ADHD women. So I know that you haven't been diagnosed with ADHD because we just talked about it. So I'm curious, do you think you have ADHD? I do. It's something over the past few years I have, I mean, after doing this work for so long, so many dots were (laughs) connecting and I finally was like, wait a minute, this is who you are as well. And once I kind of allowed myself to even think that that was my truth as well. So many things from my childhood, from my whole life experience suddenly made a lot of sense. Well, tell us about some of them. What were you like as a child? Well, I was, first of all, I was incredibly active. Like I started doing gymnastics when I was four. I was that kid who was always bouncing off the walls and needing to move. And so I started gymnastics and was really good at it. So I was that kid who was doing it four days a week on the team, just very physical. And, you know, that pivoted to track and field. I've been running since literally I was in seventh grade. So it's been, you know, almost 40 years. So very physically active. But I was also that kid who, when I was younger, like my nickname was Motor Mouth. And I can just hear my dad saying to me, Debbie, we're all in the same county. Lower your voice. Like I was just, I was an intense, big, excited, enthusiastic kid. So you sound so ADHD as far as just, you know, the different tidbits you're sharing. It sounds like a typical ADHD story. And it also sounds like the way you managed it was all of the physical activity. So the running, the gymnastics, I can totally relate. I was dancing ballet six days a week. And honestly, I don't remember a whole lot of symptoms until I stopped. Mm, Yeah. Makes total sense. So- The reason I asked you to speak to us today is Tilt Parenting. And I'm curious how Tilt Parenting came about. Well, I always like to say, you know, you read my bio. I used to work in kids TV and I was writing and just have these various interests. So this was not part of my plan was to create Tilt Parenting. But when I was in my mid-30s, I gave birth to a kiddo who we realized pretty early on was moving through the world in a more intense way. You know, there was stuff going on. It took us years to kind of figure out exactly what their neurology was and what's going on with them. But it was such a really difficult path when you're raising a kid who is just doesn't neatly fit into the box. And we were really struggling, really in every aspect of our lives, figuring out schooling and how to help meet this kid's needs. And I really felt like it should be easier. I knew that we weren't alone, but we felt alone. And I was so frustrated with 
struggling to find resources that felt strengths-based and supportive and would make us feel like we weren't failures. And so as we kind of got further down the journey and started to piece things together, I did what I always do, which is like create the resources I wish I had access to when I was younger. And so I created Tilled Parenting for other parents so they wouldn't have to go through as much pain and challenge as we did. So you have a son, his name's Asher. And how old is he now? Is he 17, 18? I think he's a year or two behind my son. Yeah, 18 in two weeks, which is just, I'm, yeah, I'm grappling with that. So is he a senior? Uh, Yeah, we'll be going into senior year. Okay, Mm -hmm. coming up. What do they call it? Rising senior. Yeah, I think so. So can you tell us a little bit about Asher's story? Yes. So... Asher was that kid who, you know, from two on was, you know, really just hyper-verbal speaking. You'd think you were talking to a peer sometimes, some of the conversations you'd have when this kid was in preschool. Ash taught himself to read before the age of three, like just fascinating human, right, on so many levels, Mm -hmm. but also very intense, a lot of emotional dysregulation, very rigid thinker. Yeah, and and not necessarily doing well socially, struggling to read social cues, struggling with unpredictability, sensory issues. So just very kind of complicated. And so when Ash was maybe in preschool, maybe four, four and a half, we we started getting more information about the sensory processing issues. We got a provisional diagnosis at the age of five for ADHD and something called pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified, which is a really great (laughs) Great. label. Yeah. love that. So the bucket, right? That they just throw everybody in. Yeah. Let's do this. Right. And also some oppositional defiance type things, which again is kind of a catch-all for we don't know what else to do. So that was the information we had. We also knew that Asher was profoundly gifted from an IQ point of view. And so we had that twice exceptionality, just a big stew of things going on. And it was tricky. I will say elementary school, figuring out the right path was very challenging. We went through three schools in three years. And ultimately, you know, you mentioned that we lived in the Netherlands. When we made that move, which is a, was at the beginning of Asher's third grade year, we decided that homeschooling was the best option. And so we did that for six years. And yeah, it's just been a fascinating journey as we've, we've navigated this and tried to figure out how to support Asher in a way that, again, was more strengths-based and would really help Asher thrive. So I listened to a number of your podcasts, especially several of the earlier ones where you had Asher on. And I just love how you and Asher get curious together. You problem solve strategies and you're so collaborative. There's no, I'm the mom, that's why. You literally treat him like an adult. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think I didn't start out that way. I mean, I, (laughs) to, yeah, just to be clear, like the first year of homeschooling, I think I was still thinking, okay, I'm in charge. I'm the teacher. I'm responsible for this kid's education. And my job is to get Asher to comply with the things that I want to have happen, right? To meet my expectations and goals. And 
I learned over the course of that very challenging first year of homeschooling that that was not really going to fly and that I was just really pushing. It was like pushing a big rock, you know, up a, up a hill and it was actually hurting our relationship. And so I made kind of a big switch and just changed things up. And I just started looking at our school as a collaboration. Like this is our school. The whole point of doing this is that there are no rules and we can do whatever we want. So what would our school look like if we could create it? And I just kind of leaned into that, you know, philosophy more and more with every passing year. And just the results were so wonderful in terms of Asher learning better emotional regulation skills and becoming more confident and really starting to understand the way that he moves through the world and and what he needs to be successful. So I got positive feedback and we just continued going down that road. How did you know to do this? Because that's not what we're taught, right? I mean, it's very rare, you know, in the media or, or, I mean, of course, you know, you can read about it, but, you know, it's like, I'm the parent, and that's how we were raised. I'm the parent, and this is how we're going to do it, because I'm the parent, period, case Mm -hmm. closed. Yeah, I mean... There are a couple of things. One is I had an educational advisor. I mean, she was really a close friend of mine from Seattle where we had lived who agreed to support us through our first couple of years, just advising me on on what to do with curriculum and such. And she just really understood Asher and wasn't kind of enmeshed with the (laughs) day-to-day emotional swings of parenting. So she could really look at who Asher was and guide me in ways that would really help his uniqueness and his strengths blossom. And so that was really helpful. And I also, there was a book by Jane Nelson. I'm sure many of your listeners know what it's called, um, Positive Discipline. And that really opened my eyes quite a bit. And also reading Alfie Cohn's work. And he wrote an incredible book called Unconditional Parenting. He's very anti-rewards and punishments. And then one other person who really influenced me was Dr. Ross Green, whose whole philosophy is that kids do well when they can, right? And that there are no, you know, behavioral challenges. There's only unsolved problems. So, you know, just continuing to dive into things and then playing with them, right? Experimenting and getting really good responses very quickly. Like I was like, oh my gosh, this actually works when this kid feels respected and listened mm-hmm. to and is in has some control everything's so much easier and so that just made me want to go down that road even further you know i just had this conversation with a colleague and friend she has a teenager and uh he has a really strong personality you know he's a bright bright kid and he knows what he wants and my comment was treat him like an adult treat him like an equal. You know, these kinds of kids, you cannot treat them like children. Mm -hmm. What I also noticed is when the two of you speak together, you're very intentional, but it always seems to be with the purpose of figuring out his intention, not yours. You're not putting your stuff on him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I recognized very early on that in order for Asher to really be successful and create the life that he wants for himself and 
and to be able to reach what I see as an incredible potential, understanding who he is, is like the most important thing. So still to this day, any conversation, any challenge, anything that we're moving through, I always approach it through that lens of what can Asher learn about himself through this situation? How can he better learn about his resources and strategies and how to navigate this? Because, you know, someday I'm not going to be there to be next to him to navigate all of this stuff. And I want him to feel that he knows himself so well that he can ask for what he needs and he can really understand, you know, where his strengths are, but also where those relative weaknesses are, right? And how to compensate for those. You know, I am in keeping with what you just said, what I've always said is that my son is my greatest teacher. Mm -hmm. Had I not had this experience with him, I mean, I certainly wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today, which has been the most fulfilling work of my life. And so I'm curious, what has Asher taught you? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Where do I start? I mean, as I said in the beginning, yeah, I wouldn't be doing any of this work today, which is certainly the most meaningful work I've done in my life. And I feel grateful every day that I get to do this. But beyond that, oh my gosh. So first of all, just even about my own you know, neurodevelopmental differences, the self-growth work I've been able to do and self-discovery work has certainly made my life feel more fulfilling, helped me work through stuff that I don't know if I would have understood how to kind of make sense of, right? Mm -hmm. Um, In the way that I've experienced my life. Um, Asher, by his very presence has, I think, healed some things in my family between my sister and me because he's highlighted things that came up when we were kids that we never addressed. And so that has been a tremendous gift. And I think just the depth of connection, right? I didn't realize when I became a parent, well, nobody does. We don't know what we're in for. We have no clue whatsoever. But I also see a lot of parents of neurotypical kids who might be going down this pretty predictable path. And, you know, they're taking their kids to their events and they're doing these things and their kids are just kind of moving through the world. And there aren't necessarily these kind of big challenges to to grapple with. And the challenges that we have gone through as a family have brought us so much closer together. What Asher and I have been through together has made us be so connected and hopefully not in a in an unhealthy, you know, codependent way, but but really just a true genuine respect for each other and I just really like who Asher is and I didn't realize that I could have that kind of relationship with my child. So it has given me so much in that respect as well. You know, when my daughter was born, I remember um I was pregnant and I can't remember. Honestly, it happened all the time. It wasn't just one time. They would ask, oh, is it a boy or a girl? Oh, it's a girl. Oh, well, you have your hands full. Wait till she's a teenager. And I remember thinking, I don't want that, you know, in my life. And so I read a book called Reviving Ophelia, and it was all about girls, raising girls, but raising girls around the world. And what I discovered is that This idea that you have to separate to this level in order to grow up and be healthy is BS. 
-hmm. It's cultural. It's something that happens in the United States. It does not happen in all parts of the world. So what I realized is that um, I didn't have to have that relationship with my daughter. And so because I knew that there was something else, and I also knew that I wasn't like that with my mother, I just kind of went in a different direction. And, you know, my daughter and I, we had one fight when she was in high school, and it was related to my anxiety over her driving. Um, but that was it. And we sat down and we talked about it, honestly, like two adults, instead of, you know, what you think is how you're supposed to do it with the screaming child, and then you're supposed to be, or the screaming teenager, and then you're supposed to be the rational parent. So I completely relate to what you're saying. And I think that the reason why Marcus and I, considering what we were up against, had it pretty easily was because I always treated him like an adult. Even when the school was calling and he, you know, had been suspended because he was smoking weed, he was a freshman, and he was smoking weed with the seniors. Um, I look, you know, when, when he, I, of course I was so upset. I thought, oh my gosh, this doesn't happen in our family, you know, whatever that means. And I remember seeing his face when he came through the door. And the only thought that went through my head is there is no way that I could beat him up more than he is already beating himself up. Yeah. So it was really about having a discussion, you know, what is going on here? And at that point we already knew he had ADHD, but like Asher, I think he was so frustrated at school because nobody would listen to him. He knew he was smart, but he could not show versus with your son, it sounded like it was more of the um, oppositional behavior that was causing him problems, right? It wasn't, he was doing just great in school. Yes. Yeah. Versus with my son, you know, he never did poorly enough that they cared but they would always say things like, you know what, you're just not living to your potential because, you know, we can tell you're so much brighter than, you know, the work product that you produce. Because he was so consistently inconsistent. He wouldn't do an assignment and he'd get an F, but then he'd turn around the next day in the same subject, right? And he'd get an A. So for me, the worst part of, and ultimately, you know, my son was diagnosed with dyslexia. Um, ADHD first when he was 12, but then he wasn't diagnosed with dyslexia until he was 18 years, excuse me, 19 years old, and he was going into his sophomore year of college. Oh my goodness. And for the wow. life of me, I cannot believe that this was missed. He literally had, at that point, three neuropsych tests. Wow. You know, and so many teachers and administrators, and they weren't all bad. He had a wonderful principal and several really good teachers um, at, believe it or not, his Catholic elementary school. But, you know, there was so much structure there that that was what made sense for his brain. Mm -hmm. But I think for us, the worst part of it was dealing with the teachers in the administration because they didn't have a clue. And I never really got the feeling that many of them cared. And because my son wasn't disruptive and the teachers really liked him, I think they just didn't care because, oh, well, as long as he's getting a C, right? Yeah. He slipped through the cracks. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I'm curious what you think about, so your son did three schools during his elementary grades before you pulled him out, which was it in third grade? Is that what yeah. I read? Mm-hmm. My son switched twice in elementary school, but only because he wanted to, because he felt that he did some research one Sunday morning and came to us and said, I think this school is better for my brain and how I learn. Didn't turn out that way. Although, you know, these schools build themselves to be this way. And then in high school, he went to three high schools in four years. Mm -hmm. And the second high school promised that they would teach to interest and that they would really, you know, it would, the education would be all built around him and what it was that he needed to learn. And it was so not true. Mm. It was founded by a billionaire. The director or the administrator of the school was um, a Stanford professor. So all the buzzwords were ticked, but ultimately it was the same old, same old. And so this is my long-winded way of asking you, in your experience, have you seen any change in, and you know, we've had private schools and we've had public schools. Have you seen any change in education since 20% of children, at least I think that's the statistic that I read as of late, 20% of children are neurodivergent and they learn differently. Yeah. Yeah. That is the statistic and it's way more than that. I'm just going to say like, wow, it's way more than one in five kids are in some way you know, neurodivergent. But, you know, I do see changes, not necessarily meaningful changes yet in traditional educational models, but even the idea of being twice exceptional, which is gifted with other neurodevelopmental disabilities, is something that schools are more aware of, that it, it is a profile that exists. There have been even in the six years since I started Tilt, so many more schools have come up, you know, whether they're micro schools or just alternative learning environments, private schools that are really designed to meet the unique needs of these complex learners. And that's really exciting for me to see. They're not everywhere. Most parents I know who are on this journey spend at least a year or more doing some fashion of homeschooling, often not by choice, but because, you know, their kids' mental health is on the line or they just feel like they've run out of options for that school year. So there's a, so much work to be done, but I do see progress. And progress in what way? Do you think it's the parents that are driving this? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, there've been a lot of thought leaders, you know, who've become more prominent in recent years. You know, Ross Green has been doing his amazing work for many years. Um, Dr. Mona Delahook is someone kind of newer on the landscape who's really part of this paradigm shifting conversation that looks at behavior differently as opposed to something we need to fix, but rather, you know, a kid's nervous system is responding in a certain way and how do we support that child? And so there are a lot more experts out there who are really loudly trying to change this conversation. And then, yeah, I think just parenting, I mean, what's available now was simply not available when I had a kid in first grade and, you know, a private gifted school in Seattle and was just being shamed and punished and consequenced to death, right? So I, I feel like parents are certainly quicker to start to realize, hey, wait a minute, 
this is not okay. Um, they're better able to advocate for their child. They have more resources to discover the best way to do that. And I do think parents are leading the charge in all kinds of schools. I have a question. I want to go back to what you said about gifted students and, you know, programs that are addressing their needs a bit better than they used to. So I'm curious about this whole idea of, so how are kids tested for a gifted program? Is it purely IQ? For most gifted programs, you know, whether that's a public school or a private school that has like a threshold, it is IQ based. And, you know, it may be the kind of thing, especially in a public school that a teacher nominates a student or identifies a student. Often if there's an older sibling who is, has been in a gifted program, they'll kind of automatically test the, the younger siblings. So it often is teacher nominated and it does well, parent nominated too, right? <laughs> well, that can happen as well. There are certainly parents who really want their kids in those programs and, and may do whatever they can to get them, them in those programs. But yeah, they tend to be IQ based and it may be, you know, being in the 95th percentile for some programs, maybe 90th percentile for some more, you know, for profoundly gifted, it might be the 98th or 99th profile uh, IQ. And so, you know, there are limitations to that because not everybody tests really well. And that is, that is looking at one, just one aspect of someone's giftedness. And we know that there are many different ways to be gifted. Well, I know with my son, um, he doesn't even have an IQ score because his visual spatial is so bad. I think it might even be in the single digits. So he's not going to be an architect, I guess. But then his math is off the charts. So I'm just curious, you know, he never went to a school where they had a gifted program, but I'm just curious if there are other ways that they test for giftedness. I'm, I mean, I'm assuming if a child, but usually it's a gifted program, right? It's not just a gifted class. So for example, if you really loved math. Yeah. I mean, some schools have, you know, full-time gifted programs that you would have to test into, right? And that would be a whole cohort of, of other gifted students. And, you know, I do know parents who've also had to push to get their kids extra time or accommodations to take the test to get into those programs because of a learning disability uh, doesn't mean that they don't have the capacity to do that level of work. And so that can happen. You know, there are other ways of looking at giftedness. There's Howard Gardner's multiple intelligences. I don't know what schools use that, but that's certainly, I don't remember how many there are, maybe seven. You know, it just looks at a more holistic view yeah. of the child's strengths and it is strengths-based. But yeah, most gifted programs, again, in the traditional school setting, or if it's a school that is, you know, bills itself as a school for gifted kids is going to be looking specifically at that IQ score. So what have you learned about ADHD through parenting Asher? <laughs> um, well, I'll just, you know, even the, the first thing that Asher, not the first thing, but something that really sticks out in my mind when we were in that first year of homeschooling was just like watching how Asher would write 
like if we were working on a writing project and I was the typist and Asher would be dictating to me and watching the way Asher would be doing, you know, laps in the living room and backflips over the couch while dictating to me. And, <laughs> and, and I was like, wow, you are a kid who needs to move to process. And, and I suddenly was like, I could see why this might be a problem in a traditional classroom. Right. And, we talked about that. I, I said something to Asher along those lines. And Ash said, yeah, like, it's not my problem. It's other people's problems because they think I should be doing things differently. But I don't have a problem with moving when I'm writing. Like, yeah, that makes total sense. So I had so many aha moments like that, you know, where Asher would explain, if I'm being told to focus, I'll use up all of my energy trying to look like I'm focusing that I won't hear anything that's happening. Mm. And I was like, so that's what happens at traditional school, right? Yes. He's just trying to behave. Exactly. And not learning anything, right? Uh, So I learned a lot of things that kind of connected dots for me in terms of why Asher had had such negative experiences in these classroom settings because they were basically requiring Ash to do the exact opposite of what his brain and body needed to do. So that was just very eye-opening. And I've continued to, you know, I've I've spent the past six years through tilt parenting, really exploring all kinds of neurodivergences, but certainly learning a lot about ADHD and just really have come to appreciate and understand the, again, incredible strengths that come with it and that there are so many different ways to support oneself with, you know, if you have ADHD and to really kind of hack yourself and figure out what, what you need and that it's very individual. There's no like one size fits all solution or approach to supporting anyone with ADHD and their symptoms. So you think it's really about observing, well, getting creative, like the two of you do, right? And Mm -hmm. sort of hacking Asher together. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what we've done all this time. And and it's an evolution too, right? It's not like we, and the same I've noticed for me, like, it's not like you figure out a system. It's like, okay, that's the system that's going to work for the rest of your life. It's like, no, this is the system that's working now. And we'll keep doing that until it stops working. And then we'll figure out another system. How hard was this for you to do? I mean, when I think about all you had accomplished, (laughs) you know, prior to Asher, you were always busy, you were always doing, and then how much of your focus then had to be on Asher and homeschooling and did it become a full-time job? Well, I am someone who's always doing a lot of things, so I never stopped working I definitely had to go through a phase where I had to kind of surrender to the reality of what was happening, right? So I think when Asher was younger, I struggled to balance, you know, my career. I was working on, I had several books under contract for teen girls. I was doing speaking. I really was enjoying that part of my work. And then I had this kid who was requiring a lot, right? And there were a lot of appointments and phone calls and emails from teachers and after school meetings and just so much going on there. And I definitely felt pulled and and frustrated because I'm like, but wait a minute, like my career matters to me and how am I going to do this? And 
One of my best friends who's an educational psychologist has known Asher since birth. And she would always say to me, Debbie, I think that being Asher's mom is more a part of your life's work than you realize. And I'd be like, yeah, 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 whatever. You know, I've got other things going on. But when we made that move and I started homeschooling, I still was trying to balance it both. But I had to really learn how to be fully present when I was with Asher and not just try to kind of tick things off the box, right? Or get through the day so I could move on to my other work. So I had to learn how to really lean in when I was with Asher and then just maximize my evenings and weekends. And I just make use of every moment of every day. So that's what I did. (laughs) What do single parents or families who can't have one parent afford to? homeschool. What do they do? Do they have any options? I think it's really tricky. And that's something I, when I do talk about homeschooling, I recognize it's not available to everyone, whether because of family, you know, composition or financial circumstances or just isn't, isn't an option. You know, I, I do know families who aren't able to not be working, who've hired people to do their homeschooling for them. Like, and I know someone who brought in a homeschool teacher to work with her kid for a couple of years. There are co-op groups that are just for homeschooling that allows parents to kind of share responsibilities. And so you're not on all the time and that can be helpful. And then as kids get older, there can be a lot of self-directed learning that can happen. And so if you're a parent who can work from home, which a lot of us are these days, it's a little bit easier, especially with older kids to make that work. But I would say if you're unable to homeschool and you're recognizing that your kid has needs that aren't being met, there are so many ways to offer enrichment opportunities, right? And online classes and giving them chances to really explore their obscure, you know, deep areas of interest so that they can build confidence and competency outside of the classroom, even if what's happening in school isn't really working for them. So you started the podcast first, right? Yes. Yeah. Six and I'm curious, plus years um, ago. When I started ADHD for Smart Ass Women, my whole purpose was I wanted to connect with other humans that were going through what I was going through, both with my son and then, of course, you know, what I was going through with myself. I wanted a community. And I'm curious, is that why you started your podcast back in 2016? Well, I will say that initially I was going to write a book first. Mm. So because that's what I've always done, that's kind of my primary way of like sharing resources in a way that other people can really understand and then apply to their own lives. That's what I've always done with my writing. So I started working on a book and my agent pitched my book and we didn't sell it. And I always knew I was planning to start a podcast and I wanted to create some sort of home, an online hub where parents could go and feel actually good about their plight as opposed to feeling like, oh crap, I really, you know, drew the short straw in this parenting life, right? So that was always there. And so when the book didn't sell, I said, okay, I'm going to put the book on the back burner and I'm going to start working on this podcast and this community. And so I spent about a year researching, 
you know, how can I do this in a way that's going to be most effective and that's going to really reach the parents that I wanted to help. So I, I really, I, when I research stuff, I go, I go deep and I did, I just did tons of like conversations and like focus groups and surveys and research and really spent a lot of time crafting, you know, a manifesto that I launched with at the same time I launched the podcast and it just kind of landed with people and it's, it's really just grown from there. So had you already, by that point, you kind of already knew, okay, this is what worked for me. So you were in a position to already help other parents trying to figure out what to do with their neurodivergent kids. Yeah, I wouldn't say that everything was easy, right? And it's still not, to be fair. Like, I'm still in this very much. But I had learned so much. And what I experienced with Asher together and saw the way our family changed, saw the way that that Asher was thriving. And yes, so I just felt like, okay, I'm ready to start sharing this with people. And I still, and I always say, like, I, I don't have all the answers. You know, I'm learning from experts, but I'm, I'm really good at sharing my learnings with others in a way that they can then take it and run with it. And also having access to, to the experts and I love interviewing people and, and I seem to be good at asking the questions that my audience wants to hear. So I just continue to learn and I share my learning with my audience. How important do you think connection is for these neurodivergent kids? Meaning with Asher, did you all make a concerted effort to try to find other kids that were like him? Yeah. And it's not easy. It isn't easy. I think a lot of neurodivergent kids, that's an area where they really struggle and they may be delayed in terms of their social emotional intelligence, and they may struggle reading social cues or making those connections. Um, Or they may have, you know, ways of being and friendships that other people find off-putting. I'm sure listeners know what I'm talking about. And so- (laughs) That's something I think is really important. It's also probably one of the trickiest pieces that I hear from parents is they've got kids who don't have friends. They have kids who who are just not having more typical social experiences in middle school and high school, and that's really painful. It's I think it's as, if not more painful for the parents than it is for their kids. And so it's it's a challenge. I get asked that question all the time. I do think it is important for differently wired kids to realize that they're not outliers, right? And to have opportunities to connect with other kids who who get it, who are equally quirky and complicated and have their own unique struggles so that kids can feel like, oh, it's not just me, you know, like I do belong. Um, I belong. And these are my people. Do you have any advice on how to go about doing that? I mean, there are social skills groups that a lot of people start with. We've certainly done those um, social skills groups. I think there are certain activities that I think tend to draw more neurodivergent kids. It might be like coding camps or fencing is like a sport that has a lot of neurodivergent kids and certainly like online gaming. There's actually here in Brooklyn, there's something called the Brooklyn Game Lab. I might be getting that wrong, but it's actually a place to go play board games. Mm. And so there's a lot of like quirky kids there, Dungeons and Dragons groups, like, you know, so kind of start to figure out where, 
where these other kids hang out and and just provide opportunities. There's also a lot of like summer camp programs, depending on where you're located, that are just for kids with ADHD or kids who are twice exceptional or kids who are neurodivergent. And so those kinds of experiences can be really, really powerful. All they need is one good friend. It's so true. You just need one. Yeah. That accepts them exactly who they are. So I am curious what you think about what would have happened if you had been the kind of parent who had said, you know what, you're going to go to school. What do you think would have happened to Asher? (laughs) You mean if I parented the way my parents parented me? Uh Um, (laughs) That's a whole other conversation. Um, Yeah, I don't think it would have gone well because school was such a triggering environment because Asher was bored and Asher was struggled, right, with with the unpredictability and with like just being in a classroom in the way that was expected. And so I think it probably just wouldn't have gone well. I think we would have gone down a, a, a bad path that would have really, you know, left Asher feeling feeling bad about who they are and being, you know, really identifying as the bad kid. And I think when you start out that way, it's really hard to turn that around, you know, as you get older and that message just gets reinforced, whether it's because of suspensions or um, just getting in trouble, getting punished, being given the message day in and day out that you're doing it wrong. There's something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. um, That takes a toll. And we see it all the time in high school and college and adults who have trauma left over from their childhoods and, and who really struggle and that's hard to overcome. So, um, did you struggle in school socially? Well, yes and no. I was young. I was like a year younger than most people in my grade. So I, and I was also really little and I was obnoxious as I've already said, I was really loud (laughs) and talked a lot. Um, so I was very easily, uh, I don't know if manipulated is the word, but I, I definitely was the kid who got picked on a lot. And the way that I compensated for that was by becoming the class clown. In Uh. fact, in my senior class poll, I was named class clown. Like that's what I got. So that was how I fit in socially. I became the smart ass class clown person. And because I was an athlete and I was involved in high school theater and the chorus and like, like I was involved in everything. Like I, I managed to find my people because of that. So do you see a lot of Asher in you? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Asher is a true combo platter actually of my husband and I, but, um, especially the multi-passionate, you know, aspect of having lots of interests and wanting to do all of them. And we are often working on projects together side by side. Like Asher always has to have a project or more than one to be working on outside of school. And that's definitely me. I think that's a lot of us. (laughs) Yeah. Right. It's great. It's the way to be. 
Well, it's so much more interesting. You know, I mean, I talk to friends who are literally plotting their retirement and I just don't understand it. <laughs> there's so much left to live and there's so little time. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. I was at dinner with someone last night and they they said the statistic is that we the average person has 4,000 weeks to live or something. Oh. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is not enough weeks. There's There's too much to do. That is appalling, actually. Yeah. 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 No, I'm never (laughs) retiring. There is absolutely too much to do. So tell us, what are the ADHD traits that you feel are responsible for not only your son's success, but let's say yours too? Well, I think that... um, Hyper-focusing is definitely a strength for Asher and, and can be for me, just being able to fully immerse, right, in, in something and not get distracted. And I think that multi-passionate piece is definitely a strength. Um, that need to create constantly is, you know, I can't, neither of us, like we cannot not be creating, right? And so um, when I look at what I've done and the, all the different like pots that I'm like stirring at any one given time, like that has allowed me to have this incredible, varied, interesting career, right? Where I've gotten to do all of these things and, and interact with so many different people in so many different ways. And um, I think that's because of that need to create and, and do all the time. And then I think just like, I don't know if Asher has this right now because Asher is a, a teen and <laughs> and it's hard to get out of bed in the morning and hard to fall asleep at night, um, but not a lot of energy in between. Whereas I am someone who's still like, I'm great at multitasking. I'm always on the move. Like I have a ton of energy yeah. and I couldn't walk faster. Like I'm that person in New York. I guess a lot of New Yorkers walk really <laughs> fast, but like people are like, oh my God, you're like walking faster than I run. But it's just like, I got things to do. And while I'm doing that, I'm listening to a parenting book on my, you know, AirPods and, and then I'm making notes on my phone for an upcoming episode. Like I just think I'm good at doing all of those things. And that allows me to keep this tilt thing running somehow. Are your friends looking at you all the time and saying, oh my gosh, slow down. I can't handle all this ambition. (laughs) I think, I don't know if it's that specifically, but I think there's a lot of like, not fully understanding, but also being a bit awed by all that I accomplish. And, you know, it sounds like it feels weird for me to say that because I'm not trying to do like a humble brag, but I get that from a lot of people because I... I appear to be, and I think I am probably, my output is a lot greater than than most people at 52, which is my age, which is sounds really old now that I said that. <laughs> nah, spring chicken. So <laughs> what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? I think it's what we talked about before, is that hacking yourself and really just understanding the way you, you know, if you're a procrastinator, okay. Like, or are you someone who needs accountability to get stuff done? All right. What's that going to look like? And just really deeply understanding what it is that works for you. And then also being flexible with that and knowing that, that it's going to change. So I think we have to be continuously curious about what's going on. Like we can't just stop and be like, okay, figured it out. I'm done. I think we have to just 
recognize that we're always changing and evolving and get curious about that process. I think that's especially true for women with hormones. Yeah, <laughs> I really do. I mean, it's like, what is happening now? This is new. <laughs> exactly. So you love reality shows. You have to tell us which one is your favorite. Uh, I should not have that in my bio. Um, I love that you have it in your bio, though, because it makes you really human, because I'm always like, I am so embarrassed. I would never tell anybody. Uh, well, I mean, the show that I have... <laughs> Oh, come on, watched. spit it out. Uh, okay. So the show is The Bachelor franchise. It's like my favorite. And <laughs> I'm just going to say, I remember when the first episode, you know, first season happened and it was like 2000 or something, 2001. And I was outraged. I was like, what is this ridiculous <laughs> premise? Like I wrote an essay on how The Bachelor is taking women, the women's movement back. Yes. <laughs> the next season, I was like, this is pretty good television. And I have not missed a season since I like, honestly, even when I lived abroad, like I would watch it on, you know, I'd find a streaming service to watch it the next day and cued to my podcast. You know, I listen to a ton of podcasts, but I think five of them are bachelor recap shows, but (laughs) I'm just going to say that the first one I listened to, it's, it's a feminist take on The Bachelor. So that's how I make myself feel better about <laughs> my obsession. It's because it's really a social science experiment, and I like to learn from that. <laughs> and you know what? That's exactly how I feel about reality television. Although I've got my nose up in the air, as I say, I don't watch The Bachelor. <laughs> I well, what do you watch? watch? Way worse. Mine is Housewives, Beverly Hills. Okay. <laughs> And I think you're right. I think what it is, is we are interested in people. And it's so fascinating to see how people and relationships evolve. I know during COVID, I watched, my daughter and I would watch, um, oh my gosh, what is the one? It was filmed in the UK and Australia and they go to Love Island. Love Island. Yeah. And the first episode you watched this And you're thinking, this is the biggest piece of crap I've ever seen. I cannot sit here and watch this because everybody has their game face on. But Mm -hmm. then by the middle, you see the humanity, like you Mm -hmm. see who they are, and you actually start to like some of these people and start rooting for them. (laughs) But I, I really think it is because we just have such an interest in people and how they work the way they work and what makes them tick. And, you know, at least for me, it's that. Yeah. And it's also, as these shows evolve, like it's highlighting how society is evolving, right? Yeah, it, well. it helps me. Well, not that that's always a good thing, but yeah. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. I find it fascinating. I will say that I was in Seattle visiting friends two weeks ago. I stayed with my girlfriend and, and her family every night. We After dinner, we'd sit and watch. I had never watched Love Island, but that was the show. The whole family was watching together every night. And I was like, what is this show? But I can see how you just get sucked in. Yeah. I mean, it's it truly is crap. And it's so superficial. But truly, it's the humanity that creeps out after, you know, watching a couple episodes where you, you really start liking some of the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> not all of them, <laughs> not many of them. But anyway, okay, Debbie, are you working on something that you want to tell us about? Well, 
The thing I'm most excited about right now is I have something called the Differently Wired Club, and it is like my membership community. And I'm in the middle of like, if you could see my desk, I've got tons of like notes and like, I'm kind of, it's been three years now and I'm reworking it to make it work for more people to join me. So I'm really excited about that. I might have a little book that I'm not ready to share yet, but that I'm kind of thinking about a book for differently wired teens Mm. and yeah. And just planning my new podcast season and all the good stuff. So, um, so tell us about the differently wired club. What do you all do there? Well, it's my most favorite thing. There's a group of us, all parents in various stages of raising their neurodivergent kids. And every month we have a theme like this month, I just recorded the theme is managing our energy and emotional resources. So it's really focused on us as parents And so we work through a theme together. We have, you know, a coaching call in the middle of the month with me and another parent coach. There are office hours almost every week just for parents to connect with each other and like be heard and like share what's been hard and get ideas from other people. And then we always are reading a book uh, and we invite the author to come join us at the end of the month for a conversation about that book. And it could be like a self-help book, often a parenting book. So it's a place for people to feel like, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. These are my people. People can show up on calls and cry and be held and seen and supported. And it's just such an incredible community. Yeah. I was just going to say, it's that community that we were talking about. Yeah. Because I think that is literally half the battle. The minute you realize that, oh, I'm not alone here. Just one other person, right, that's struggling with what you're struggling with. It makes all the difference. Yeah, because we can feel like we're failures. Like if we're if mm. we're comparing ourselves to the other parents at school pickup or <laughs> what our kids, you know, we see these kids in our neighborhood who are having these great play dates and, you know, their kids seem to be perfect humans navigating the world without any problems, then we can start to wonder, what am I doing wrong? Like, what is wrong with me? I'm a huge failure. And so finding people who really understand what you're going through is everything and can really just turn the tide for so many of us. You know, I never really struggled with that because (laughs) I had a daughter first and my daughter was literally perfection. She was the easiest child to ever raise. I mean, she slept through the night at day seven. She, you know, valedictorian, everybody loved her. She was so easy. And I literally thought, oh, well, it's because we're such great parents. Mm -hmm. And then I had my son. So thankfully, I had that comparison. And I was like, you're not doing anything different here. This is the kid, you know, this is very little to do with you. So yes, that's so funny. It always yeah, we, made me laugh. We won the jackpot with our first child and we're like, all right, we're good to go. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So where do people find you if they want to know more about uh, the Differently Wired Club or what you do, or they want to find your book? They should go to tiltparenting.com and you can download the first chapter of my book for free there. You can check out what's inside the club. You can look at Now, I'm just about to release episode 300 of my podcast, so you can check out the guests that I've had or search for specific topics and find lots of other resources. And also, that's how you can connect with me on social anywhere is at Tilt Parenting. And can I just say, Debbie, 
Your website is perfection. Everything you do, you just put so much care into it. I'm just, and, and I mean, I really care about aesthetics and all that, but you just take it over the top. You, you just do such a good job with just the quality of everything you do. That is so wonderful. Thank you. Like, I'm so touched that you said that. That means a lot. I, something I care a lot about and. I can tell. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate I that. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. Everything that you just mentioned will be in the show notes. And that's what I have for you for this week. So if you like this episode with Debbie, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal, you know, it's to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women and kids as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.